one of the things I suppose I did know early on was about the networking situation and about, um, you know, there was a fashion magazine that I always wanted to work on and somebody told me, they were trying to be nice by the way, um, somebody said to me, do you know what, people like you and me probably won't work there, we don't look the right way. Uh, it wasn't about skin colour, it was just we weren't polished um, and we don't sound the right way. I founded the BeWare Collective, a not-for-profit organisation that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. I am very excited to interview today's guest. She is named one of Britain's most influential women. She started Women's Health UK magazine in 2012 with barely no budget and only two employees. And it became the most successful women's magazine launch of the millennium. In 2015, she became the editor for Cosmopolitan, re-imaging it for a new millennial audience which by the end of the year had increased sales by 59%. And today she is the editor-in-chief of the UK luxury magazine, Elle. She also has two TED Talks under her belt and has written a fantastic and inspiring book called The Discomfort Zone. I am so pleased to say that my guest today is Farah Storr. Now, before we go into this week's episode, I wanted to give a huge shout out to our sponsors this week, which is Moogoo. Moogoo is an Australian natural product range designed for those with sensitive skin conditions such as eczema and psoriasis, as well as those who are health conscious, like me, and care about what they're putting on their skin. What I love about Moogoo is that they're designed for the skin and the sculpt using high quality, natural, and get this, edible ingredients. Mugu are cruelty free, which is a huge tick for me. And despite their name Mugu, it has absolutely nothing to do with the farm animal cows. Now I wanna tell you a little bit about the story about how the founder Craig Jones founded Mugu back in 2005. He noticed his mother was using a cream which dairy farmers actually used on cow's udders to soothe her psoriasis. Craig was clever and he created a human-friendly version based on the cream which he gave to his mother and word spread, Mugu was born. They now, in 2021, have over 40 products ranging from skin, hair and body. Now, when I heard about Mugu recently, I absolutely fell in love with their story and also their brand and their philosophy behind it. Because for me, I actually do suffer with sensitive skin. I might not have eczema and I might not have psoriasis, but it's probably from my modeling days and my skin is very reactive and my hair is very, very dry. So for me, my go-to of their products is their natural protein shot leave-in hair conditioner and their natural tingly lip honey balm. And it's perfect for those in-between seasons when you need something, when your lips are really dry. So Mugu has been specifically designed for people with skin irritations or problems, 
But if you're like me, who is health conscious and tries not to use products packed with synthetic ingredients and chemicals, and are also eco-conscious, then I'd highly recommend Mugu as a go-to. So if you are interested and you want to try their products, they've given us a really lovely exclusive discount of 15% off. All you have to do is head to muguskincare.co.uk and enter livewell15 at the checkout. And let me know what you think. Sarah, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for coming on today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, nice. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. But, oh, I wish we could do this in person, but this is this is good enough. This is good enough. So I know that you just finished a training session, which means you embody living very well. And I was really impressed to hear that. But, you know, how do, firstly, I always like to ask my guests how they look after their health day to day. I got the dog. Is the <gasps> well, I've had dogs for the last eight years, but there's... Um, there's research, isn't there? I mean, this is going it's back a lot to of research. There's a lot of research, but the one bit of research which always stayed with me when I used to, many moons ago, I used to edit a magazine called Women's Health. And I remember the thing about exercise was in order, you've got to do it forever. So mm-hmm. it's, you can't just do it short term. They've got, got to do it all over again. You've got to do it forever. And in order to do that, you have to make it fun. Mm-hmm. And if you can make it meaningful, amazing. And so for me, I'm a fairly obsessive character so I Mm -hmm. throw myself into things and then I relinquish things quite quickly um and so first of all I love dogs I grew up with dogs but then I was like well you know the wonderful thing about dogs is you have to walk them no matter how down you're feeling no matter how your body looks or feels you've got to get them out there and particularly my dogs they will stare at me um, and then they'll start batting me with their paws if we don't take them out so the the truth is I'm quite sporadic with my workouts. You've got mm-hmm. me at a particularly good point. <laughs> but actually the consistent exercise and kind of health for me is mm. what w- is the dogs. Um, and also actually, uh, to be honest, Sarah, in the last few years, it's been gardening, which makes me sound terribly old. Um, but, you know, gardening is the one thing for me. It's very solitary and I'm quite a solitary individual. I like mm. time alone. I like time to think um but gardening it really sustains you in a way that nothing else does I haven't found it with yoga I haven't found it with running but being out there kind of surrounded by nature seeing things grow seeing seeing things fail nurturing seeds um there's something very prosperous about it for your mental health and so for me yeah it would be dog it would be having a dog but also getting out into the land I suppose so being I in nature my garden yes and you know I don't use gardening gloves I like to feel I like to feel the soil beneath my fingernails and it I come back a kind of changed person I can be mm. out there get into the flow I can be out there for se- kind of seven eight hours and I will come back inside and my husband will say you're like a different person wow it's that it's that disconnection isn't it which I don't think many of us really get a chance to do so I think connecting to the earth and with your dogs can I just ask which dogs that you have because I'm a huge dog person yes I have a labradoodle called Parker and we have a golden doodle called Jones and they're big I mean they're not really what we thought doodles were they're huge dogs so they require an enormous amount of of energy uh, and entertainment 
Oh, fantastic. That's a really nice answer. Just being in nature and being with your dogs. So going back to your childhood and, and just giving the audience a bit of, you know, background on you, you know, you, you launched Women's House magazine here in 2012, I think it was. And within with two people and not much budget. I know I've watched a lot of interviews and you talking about this because it's amazing the work that you've done. You made it the most successful women's magazine launch of the millennium which is incredible. And then you went on to do exactly the same thing in Cosmopolitan of re-image the whole magazine to the millennials again. And by the end of the year, you increased sales by 59%. And now you are the editor of Elle magazine. So growing up as a child in Manchester, were these your ambitions of being an editor? What was your kind of childhood ambitions as you were growing up? the truth is it probably was because I loved magazines I just didn't know how to get into magazines Mm. and and so much so it I had a vague idea that somebody there was a person whose picture was in the front of the magazine and they were called the editor and they kind of operated this whole um kind of a hundred odd pages I didn't really know what the job entailed but I knew it looked like a fun job but but it just felt so disconnected from my life um, and actually, the truth is, as often happens, you know, I had a fairly strict dad. My dad is kind of, my dad is from Pakistan, so he's quite traditional in some senses and in some senses not at all. But he's quite traditional in, in his ambitions for his kids. So, mm. you know, particularly for me and my sister, it was like, you know, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, or you're going to be, I think it was an engineer. And the creative industries were just not a thing. They were just not on his radar. Um I think the truth is he didn't really see any status involved with them. And so I suppose it was just always thought that I would become a solicitor. And I became obsessed with this idea of getting into Oxford or Cambridge because it would please my dad. And my sister, who's got 10 years ahead, is 10 years ahead of me. She actually was the kind of dutiful daughter and she she studied law at Birmingham and then she did her articles and then she became a solicitor. And she was madly unhappy. She found it deeply boring. And she used to read magazines as well. She was obsessed with magazines like me. And actually, there was a competition in a magazine that she used to read. It's called More Magazine. And she won the competition. And part of the prize, I think, was you got to go down to London and you won a date with two male models. Sort of sounds obscene that you won it with two male models rather than just one. But you, you won a date with these two male models. And you won work experience. And the date with the male models, I think, was a whole load of fun. But actually, the work experience was really transformative for her because she came back to Manchester and she said, look, there are these jobs out there. There are people who work on these magazines and it's madly creative. And, you know, and because of her, I think a job came up on the magazine where she'd won the competition and they offered her the job. She she upsticks, moved from London, moved from Manchester down to London, took a kind of 50% pay cut, but she made the move. And because she was kind of a 10 years ahead of me, she kind of had those battles with my father about actually, this is what a good career can look like in the media. I mean, she, she excelled very quickly. She was a junior writer one minute and then 18 months later, she became editor of the magazine. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, it was quite, I mean, it doesn't really happen like that anymore, but back in her day, um, at the company she worked for, they kind of accelerated young talent very, very quickly. Mm. Um, and 
my father, I suppose, suddenly had an idea of what good could look like. And suddenly he saw that there was status involved, that actually you could be the boss, you could be the editor. And so in a way, she, I mean, you have older siblings, the importance of, of having an older sibling who can mm. have those battles for you and kind of pave the way. That's how I suddenly discovered that perhaps, A, I wanted to be an editor and B, it might be possible for me. Yeah. God, that's really, that's actually quite true because, yeah, my brother is 10 years older as well and he paved the way in the fashion industry way before I was was in it myself. So I think there's a lot to be said for older siblings carving carving that route for you. When you, I've heard you speak before about when you were 13 and so growing up and obviously, you know, discovering what you're going to do, but you were hit with disordered eating at around 13 years of age. You know, how for you, what were your first signs? What was it that you felt like you were struggling with? Is there anything that emphasized that? Because I think there's so many young men and women out there, especially in this pandemic. And I work a lot with disordered eating as an associate nutritionist. And during coronavirus and the pandemic, it has shot up the rates of people worrying about food and their relationships with food and food anxiety and eating disorders have skyrocketed. Um, for you at 13 you know what was that like how did how did you start first start realizing that you did have a disordered relationship with food well I think you don't think it's disordered do you I think you think it's completely normal until you see the reaction of somebody else either to your body Mm -hmm. or to your habits I remember at lunchtime I used to go to the cafeteria at school and I would I would starve myself all week and I would have, I would treat myself and have one tiny um, white um, bread roll. Mm. And I remember my, he's called Mr. Bergen. I remember the, Mr. Bergen walking past me and doing like a triple take. And you, and, and, and it was really interesting because it wasn't a teacher I was particularly close to, but in that moment, I saw that there was somebody looking at me, looking at obviously what was happening. And, and there was terror in his eyes. And, and I was at an all-girls school. He'd probably seen it many times before. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think... So, so there were little things like that. And I remember once overhearing a neighbour say to my parents, um, Farah's starting to look quite grey, like her skin looks grey, her hair doesn't look good, is she okay? And so, so bits by bits, it was other people's um, reaction to me, I think, which kind mm. of made it all kind of fit together. But... I mean, I suppose it ha- yeah, I couldn't even tell you how or why it happened. I mm. mean, and because of course, as, as you'll know, there are a thousand different reasons and they're all highly individualistic for different yeah. people. Absolutely. And for me, the only thing I can say is it coincided with puberty. Mm-hmm. It coincided with, I had been an, uh, an, a very, very good runner for a very long time as a young child and I had developed quite a muscular body. I hated um I I was very academic at that point Mm -hmm. very academic and so I suppose all those things combined together somehow manifested in trying to take control of my life through through eating and and of course what happened in the beginning is I know a lot of people when I first lost a bit of weight people said you look really good and of Mm -hmm. course you feed off that yeah. Um, and for me, actually, yes, I mean, I, I didn't eat very much, but actually it became a kind of um, became a very disordered 
relationship with exercise with everything really I mean the thing mm-hmm. is they're all kind of cross they're very interconnected that's mm-hmm. it you know it was eating it was exercise it was work mm. um, and I have to keep a, an eye on that I mean again you will know but these things do sit with you for most of your life so even though I would say I have a pretty re- um, healthy relationship with, with food and I'm you know I'm pretty okay with my body I don't really have any hang-ups I'm very lucky but the obsessive nature is there so mm. that's why gardening and walking my dog for me are probably really good methods of exercise yeah rather than if I was to suddenly go I love spin I know that I could be the sort of person who would, would be doing it seven days a week for hours at a time and ditto with work you know me and my husband made a very conscious decision to move to the country a few years ago because when I lived in town I would just nip to the office at the weekend like I, I just wouldn't stop working so um to answer your question properly I've completely gone off on a tangent no you definitely haven't it's it doesn't leave you and I think I was probably in the grip of it from about 13 the, the real teeth of it from about 13 to 15 um but of course, it was really up until about, I think, my late 20s that I started to have a, an OK relationship with, with food uh, and not see it as, as the enemy. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's it's something that at 15, a tap was turned and, I, and, and actually I was kind of freed from an eating disorder or disordered eating, however you choose to call it. Um, it was a kind of it was a gradual thing for me. Um, and yeah I mean the thing is it's very hard isn't it because I think the other thing is you realize when you're out of it just how much mental space it occupies as well you're when you are that hungry I must have spent that year the irony is I was trying to to you know all I wanted was to be an excellent academic student but the irony was my brain was completely preoccupied with food for a huge percentage of the time Mm -hmm. um so, yes, it's a very inarticulate way of explaining what happened to me. And, you know, I, you could probably look at pictures of me now. You would probably know I was quite sick, but I don't think every, everybody would. You know, I'm quite a big no. bone individual. I have, a, I have muscly legs. That's the way I'm built. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose it also did coincide with, but I don't want to lay blame here because, like I said, there are so many reasons. But I was madly into fashion. And it was the kind of supermodel movement. Mm. And it's absolutely not to lay blame with the fashion industry because, you know, actually my my kind of role model was Cindy Crawford and she brought out the exercise video. But it would have had a small, it would have, you know, not seeing different body types. Mm -hmm. um, Because even though you had the Amazonians, kind of the Cindy's of the world, you also had grunge coming in and you had the whole heroin chic thing coming in when I was growing up. Mm. So the aesthetic was very, very thin, mm-hmm. pencil thin, actually. Um, so it would have definitely had, it would have had some effect, I think, but I'm not going to lay the whole blame on, 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 on the fashion industry because actually I don't think that's true, but I think it would have had a, a, a small kind of scintilla of, a, of an effect if, if I'm truthful. I think that is a really important point to acknowledge that the fashion issue might have played a small part, but it's not the full picture. And I think you said it when in your first answer is there isn't one thing I can pinpoint because it is a mental health condition. And I think that's when it's really overlooked eating disorders. 
is that there's not one solution. There's not one solution fits all. And there's probably a lot of people that are listening to this and that might be struggling with their eating and they're not sure why. And I think the fashion industry does have a part to play. And that's really important to speak to you as an editor. Like what's your responsibility of as an editor being, you know, for Elle now, but also Women's Health, which is a very different magazine. They're two very different magazines. What's your responsibility that you feel as an editor to actually portray, you know, a healthy role model on those covers? I think my my role as an editor is to show diversity of body shape. So it's not to suddenly go to, I think a lot of people mistakenly, we, we um, when I was at Cosmopolitan worked with Tess Holiday and we put Tess on the cover. And Tess yeah. is, um, is, a, is a bigger model. Tess, I think is, she's maybe a size 24, maybe. She's, tw- she's, I think she, I think she was 26 she's 300 pounds isn't she yeah yeah so 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 people look at that cover and go well you you go from one extreme to the other and, and actually they're mistaken actually Tess is is one body shape um some of the models we use in L uh we, which we're actually we're using more and more are another body shape um mm-hmm. you know there are some models who are naturally very slim who I would not want to demonize and say they don't have any place in the magazine either. I think you've got to cover the whole spectrum. Um, And that does mean I'm really lucky. I've got an amazing, amazing, instinctively brilliant casting team. Mm. And they know, and it comes from them, not just me, actually. Mm. They know that the expectation from me as an editor, but also the expectation of anyone working on a magazine is responsibility. So they work really, really hard mm-hmm. um, to find models who are just different. You know, I don't, when I'm looking at model cards, I don't end up looking at the same types of body shape. My team are really, really good. And actually, I tell you what my team are also really good at, is I've always felt for models. Back in the day when, when models came in, I always made sure that my team spoke to them. They didn't just look at their book and just flip over oh, and just been in so many of those terrible you know they've <laughs> spent their money they've got the bus there they're young they're scared um of course it's very different now but actually what my team do which I love is I'm really interested in the whole picture of that individual so they'll go on their Instagram and they'll find pictures of them off duty and what are they, and you can tell so much about them so mm. for me when we're casting the diversity of, of body shape is, is really important as is skin tone and and, and, and you know hair color and eye color but actually for me as an editor the character of the model and what they do and what their pleasure is outside of modeling mm. is very very important too and look you can't tell if somebody is, is healthy from an Instagram account of course you can't we know that mm-hmm. but you do start to get an inkling into perhaps um, what's going on behind the scenes with certain models Mm-hmm. Um, and so we t- we try to take a, a kind of wider view when we're casting, but we are pushing really hard to show different body types. The the it's not a problem actually because it's getting much better. Um, is just we need more, we need more models who are, you know, we need to have more choice. I think it's that. I think we need to have. It would be wonderful to see more models who are a twelve or a fourteen or a sixteen. It's mm-hmm. not about extremes for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm very keen on when we do have the opportunity without tokenizing, by the way, I'm really, I get quite funny about if you have a model and she's slightly bigger, people can then tokenize them as that's the bigger girl. 
but it's really hard because we had a shoot recently. Um, oh, I've forgotten the model's name, an amazing girl. And she happens to be um, slightly bigger than, than your average model. She's still slim, mm. but she had like these amazing, um, just like a, a, you know, like, like a normal person would have. She had like a little roll of, you know, um, flesh at the side of her body. And so you make the decision as an editor, you should show that if the model is comfortable with that, it is an opportunity to show it. Now, of course, it's difficult because there's probably put this poor model. It's like, well, everybody, you don't want to tokenize me as the, you know, the, the, the model that has the, the tiny bit of, of flesh at the side of a stomach. But at the same time, you also have to think about the greater good, which is, mm. well, actually, if you have, if you're exposing your magazine to, you know, tens of thousands of young women and they see a model who has a body which doesn't look, I say perfect, she's got a good body, good healthy mm. body. I think that may be slightly more important. You've got to check with the model and check that they're happy. But we, we do try to show the realities of bodies where we can. I mean, that's why I always talk about, you know, I'm a size 14 and people are like, well, why mention that? And it's like, it's a totally valid point, but I'm like, I think it is important if you're okay with it. If you're okay with it, I don't have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never defined myself by my ethnicity, my gender, my weight. I, I just haven't, you know, I, I'm kind of me and I'm very unique. However, I do think sometimes um, if there's something really important and you think it's going to make a, a big impact, I think the editor of Fashion Magazine talking about being a size 14 is probably not a bad thing. If no, I, I think it's a great thing. I think it's, I mean, and there's two questions I want to ask here. So I don't know which one to ask first, actually. Following that, do you feel confident in the fashion environment as yourself now, having been aware of your body image a lot in the past and you're eating? Do you feel that being in that environment, because I've been in the fashion industry environment for, for 16 years now, and I think when I actually left it for a bit to study and and worked in nutrition, a lot of the pressures that I felt had actually dropped. And when I come back into it, I, I, I can feel them arise quite quickly. You're still working in that environment and it might be a bit different now because you're working from home a bit more. So it's, it's, you don't have that intense environment every day at the fashion industry or events and parties, um, breakfasts and lunches and fashion weeks. But how do you feel yourself being around that environment? Is it a different environment being in... L as it and fashion week as it is to working for women's health because I think they're both very aware of the aesthetics but they're both very aware in it from completely different viewpoints yeah I I think the answer is fashion the veneer of fashion is that everybody is perfect and, and and a certain body shape and a certain look the reality is once you get behind the scenes people are normal I mean, I'm talking about not the models here. I'm talking about people like me, editors, um, stylists. It's quite surprising when you go behind the curtain that actually, you know, people are not these glossy gods and goddesses, actually. They're normal people trying to get a job done. Mm. Um, And I think the truth is, because I've come into fashion at, you know, I, I was 40, I'm 42 now. I was 40 when I took over at L. I think by the time you're 40, I've had like, you know, 15, 20 years to get very comfortable with who I am. And and this is, you know, this is all right. How I am is okay. And I'm really happy with that. And the confidence that comes with age means that 
you know, the reality is I do walk into lots of dinners and I'm usually the biggest person there, not by huge amounts, but, but yeah, I'm usually the biggest person there, but it's just not a thing. I mean, it's just, Good. it really isn't. When I worked at Women's Health, um, I would say there was more pressure, if I'm completely honest. Um, mm. You know, again, it's not to demonise anyone, but but it was probably the same time you were in New York. I was in the wellness, the, the kind of wellness boom was just happening, the clean eating fad. Mm-hmm. Um, you would walk into a room and you were the editor of a wellness title. So there was, I felt far more pressure that when I walked into when I was on stage giving a talk about wellness, that actually there were people expected me to look a certain way and live a certain lifestyle. So in many ways, I found that harder. Mm. Than I have to say, you know, I'm probably lucky as well. I think the fashion industry has probably loosened up a lot as well. Um, but but mm-hmm. yeah, the pressures are very different and, and much harder for me when I was at Women's Health. Yeah, I can really see that from both sides because I can also say, going into the wellness sector a lot more and, and looking at nutrition. And I mean, I work more in nutritional science and, than wellness, but they are aligned very heavily. There's still this massive pressure within that industry itself. It's quite surreal, actually, stepping back and looking at them both. They're very different, but they also have a lot of similarities within the pressures of, even though they're not the same pressures, they're still aesthetically, there's still a lot of pressure. Yeah. And with the women's health side, I think there's a lot more on working out and getting up as you said to do that spin class every morning um whereas in the fashion side I think it's just about eating less I think you have distinct pressures but there are pressures on aesthetic looks um and that leads me to a really interesting question that because you've suffered with your eating and you've been in the industry for you know you know within the journalism industry for so many years now and you've pioneered so many incredible magazines do you feel a moral obligation to help support fashion models that may be suffering with similar eating disorders? And do you think fashion magazines should book these models also and provide a level of support for them? I think that the support has to come from the model agency. I think mm. I think fashion magazines, I mean, the thing is, journalists, fashion magazines, whatever you want to call it, they have a responsibility in that they present an image to the world. So you have to be really careful with what you do with that image. I also think you have a responsibility, as like I was saying to you earlier, that when, a, if we were back in normal times, that when models come into the office, you treat them with respect, you talk to them. In talking to them, you have an inkling of, of is that individual ill? You know, what is going on with that person? That's why I was never a fan of those when people just look at their books and flick it over and they don't look at the person stood next to them because the person stood next to them, that's the clue as to how happy that individual is. I, I've always thought, I mean, we're journalists, instinctively you know, if you look and interact with that person, you're going to know. And actually, I think journalists do have a responsibility if you've interacted with that model and you're worried to report it back to the model agency. The model agency, though, it is their responsibility. Um, but yes, what we do with the images, of course, it's our responsibility, which is why I would like to think we've never certainly in my time peddled um, anything dangerous. Mm. Uh, but but yeah, of course, the, the welfare of models is so important, particularly, you know, I was talking to you earlier about my big worry. Um, and we've not done anything on this, uh, L. it's not to say we would never do it. 
Um, it's just that it's not the kind of what we're doing at the moment. But my big thing for models is, you know, they get plucked out of, you know, a town at 16 and then they, they're thrown into a world without their parents, they leave education. And then if they're lucky, they get 10 years, if they're really lucky. Mm. And then what? who's looking at, who's looking out for them when they're hitting 25, 30? I think a lot about that. I, mm. I really do. I have friends who have models and who were models, I should say, and very successful, very successful. who have had careers up until their mid thirties, but then, but then they go, well, you hit your mid thirties and nobody told you that actually maybe you should have had that degree or make, you know, maybe you should have made networks at the same time in different industries. So that concerns me as well. It's a slightly Mm -hmm. different thing to the kind of whole body conversation, but I do think it's equally as important actually. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I can definitely, I can definitely emphasize that because a lot of the girls that I was modeling with when I was 15, 16, never even got 10 years, you know, at 21, they were, out of season because they were editorial um, or they grew hips in puberty and they weren't the right size and shape anymore. And I think that's the big truth is that a lot of girls and men also don't get even GCSEs. And so then you kind of feel that you're starting again. And I think that's where a lot of mental health problems can occur. Um, and you, you know, you said it, I say it all the time, models are like athletes and their body is their moneymaker. And as soon as they're not, you know, within the right season anymore, or as soon as their look's gone, that's it. Their shelf life is finished. So it's a very small shelf life. And it's the same in so many different careers, like dancers, ballet dancers are quite similar, athletes, sport professionals. Um, I do think there definitely needs to be a a wider conversation around how you support them post their career. Just while you're talking, I was just thinking, Sarah, I think, you know, and it must be far worse for models but I, I often talk to my team about the concept of beauty. And, and in fact, we interviewed Jane Birkin about this, you know, one of the most beautiful women of, of all time. And it's like at some point you are going to lose your beauty. It's the, one of those terrible curses that, you know, is it better to have never been had beauty or is it, is, it, is it a curse to have been born beautiful? Because it is going to leave you at some point. Mm. And at some point in your life you have to make a switch to something else the way you look you have to move into you put value on something else Mm. and I wonder I don't have an answer for this but it must be so hard to be a model male or female um and the whole world looks at you and responds to you in in the way you look and you know at some point I mean of course models you know they they are they become beautiful older women or men of course Mm but things change and again I think it's one of those truisms that models should be told but anyone that kind of puts a lot of store in the way they look mm. is try and find something else because mm. you're val- it's going to change and when it changes and if you have nothing else to fall upon you're going to feel like you've been knocked sideways and mm-hmm. I don't think I, th- I know a lot of people who were very beautiful when they were younger and they don't recover that, you know, they, they, they try to kind of get back once they had what, what they once had. And I suppose my, my advice has always been forget what you once had. What's the next chapter for you? Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose it all goes back to what we're saying about modeling is, you know, the best advice I could give to a young model is 
try and have something else for your own peace of mind, but also the transition of, of when you're no longer a model. Mm-hmm. I think that advice actually goes to everybody because there's an aging process with everyone. And I think every single, especially women and men, I can say from a lot of my gay friends, that when you age, you know, you do lose your looks and you do lose the, you know, the collagen and the elasticity of your skin and, you know, the firmness that you have. And I think that is just getting older and the world looks at you differently you know it they happens do very quickly yeah a hundred percent they look at you very differently or they stop looking at you mm. and that's very hard for some people yeah I think especially with the new age of Instagram filters and snapchats that we're seeing and when I look at when I started off modeling I actually now think the same pressures apply to every single young adult um at the moment because they all have the pressures of social comparison through social media um, and they all filter themselves Um, and so there's this really distorted view and growing up with that I think can hugely affect your mental health and I don't know if you've seen the latest statistics but the body image statistics are horrific so the I'm going to throw some facts in right now the research by the Mental Health Foundation they've shown that 50% of 18 to 24 year olds have admitted to feeling anxious because of their body image and how they look. And then complementary to this, a worrying 10% of women have deliberately self-harmed because of their body image, which is such a high stat. And I'm not putting this on the fashion industry. I mean, they media have a small part to play. Social media has a quite a large part to play, I think, with Snapchats and Instagram filters and people making their lives out to be the best they can you know what what's your advice to anyone listening that is struggling with their body image or maybe they're in that age where they're starting to age and seeing their body change and maybe wrinkles appear what's your advice um as a you know as a woman to anyone listening who is struggling with how they look right now well I guess and it's very easy for me to say but it's like you have to put your success in something else you know Mm. When I was in, and it's very easy for me to say, because when I was a teenager or in my early 20s, you desperately care what the world look, how the world looks at you. Mm-hmm. And you want to look a certain way. But actually, in my early 20s, I started to become more obsessed with, actually, I want to be the best journalist I can be. And so I started to shift mindset between wanting to be the most perfect looking individual to actually wanting to be this brilliant journalist. And so I suppose it goes back to the previous conversation find something that you love yeah and it's not someone listening to this will go well that's not going to make me stop weighing myself or wanting to be thinner no it's not but what will happen is you will find something else which will distract you and you will care so much about and that will give you such a sense of purpose that the hope is that your purpose doesn't come from the way you look and the way the world looks at you that would be my best advice and actually I mean it just sounds like just such terrible trite advice find a hobby but it's not that it's find something that makes you tick and that gives you purpose Mm. and then you will care less about the other stuff because look I could give you advice and go well don't be on social media and don't use filters Mm. but the reality is no one's going to stop doing that are they (laughs) yes technology is to blame the fashion industry to blame but ultimately it is within ourselves you know the camera on a phone we could have as human beings started you know who knew that the camera on a phone 
we could have started taking pictures of, I don't know, mums, mumsies or flowers, mm. but we turned it on ourselves. Mm. And there's a level of narcissism within us all that we cannot control. Hugely. So, yes, you can blame the technology and it's definitely not helpful, but it is within us. So mm -hmm. you have to just... Yeah, I think that would be the best advice is find something else, find what your purpose is. I mean, even me, you know, with my obsession with just to go back to gardening again, um, <laughs> you start to see the change. You know, my Instagram used to be full of kind of people who look great and had great style. Now it's full of bloody flowers and birds and bees. And but the, but but actually the mental health transition, you can see even on my grid, it, mm. it's it's kind of getting away from ourselves and inside our heads and finding something else. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, just from my part as a media player, you know, at Elle, I've always been really keen to, as I said to you, show what real bodies look like, show what wrinkles look like, show what grey hair looks like. That That's what human beings look like. And actually, it's the destination we're pretty much all going to. Mm -hmm. So why be ashamed in showing it? I completely agree. And I think you just touched upon so many important factors that as an editor, you should show. And you know, I want to talk about a little bit about diversity in that as well, because over the last year, there's been a lot of discussions about diversity within the fashion industry and is it represented correctly? And you're one of the very few editors in the UK that's from a multiracial heritage. You know, your father, as you said, is Pakistani. Um, you know, did you feel any judgment coming into this industry, which predominantly has for a very long time celebrated Caucasian middle-class people you know did you feel any judgment and any fear coming into into the fashion industry from your background I think that's it I mean I have to say and it's not the answer everybody likes but I didn't actually and I have to say I think being unique has served me quite well if I'm completely honest um, do you think that's because you're confident in it though Probably. Yeah, probably. Mm. I think that's right. Um, I think and I think it's completely different for lots of uh, for lots of reasons. I also think there's a privilege that comes with being mixed raced. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, people don't really know what I am. But um, so I never felt discriminated against i have to say uh, people say that's fantastic discriminated against being a woman and i go no but i'm really lucky because i'm in a female driven um industry and mm. the truth is subconsciously i suspect i went into it because of that i looked at the magazine industry and it was women at the top um people ask me did you get discriminated against um for you know being mixed raced and i never did Although I was privy very early on in my in my career to some slightly awkward conversations about race, people not realising, I think, that I was mixed race. Um, I think I was very aware that maybe the representation wasn't great mm. um, early on in my career. And I didn't do anything because I was young and I felt a bit out of my depth and I didn't feel actually that it was probably my place to say it. And actually, it's very different now. I have to say, mm. I think certainly on L, I think it happens in a lot of magazines. I think younger people now feel more empowered and hopefully have bosses who let them, even if they don't always agree with them. I definitely don't always agree with my team, but I'd like <laughs> to let them tell me what they're thinking. And, yeah. you know, um, but no. So I have to say the only thing that I did notice, but again, was I penalised for it? Well, I may have been. I mean, the reality is, Sarah, 
I could have been discriminated against for being a woman and for being mixed race or for being from Manchester. But I suppose what I did was I never chose to dwell on it because I was like, I'm so focused on being undeniably good that I don't want to give anybody a reason to try and discriminate against me. Like, mm. And I always say it to people, just be undeniable, be so brilliant. It goes back to purpose. Find what you're obsessed with, channel it, and give them no reason to not hire you. Um, however, there are lots of caveats with that. And one of the things I suppose I did know early on was about the networking situation and about... Um, you know, there was a fashion magazine that I always wanted to work on. And somebody told me, they were trying to be nice, by the way. Um, somebody said to me, do you know what? People like you and me probably won't work there. We don't look the right way. Uh, it wasn't about skin colour. It was just we weren't polished um, and we don't sound the right way. And I did feel early on that I probably should get a handle on my accent. I probably should polish up a little bit. And I never got round to it, is the truth. Um and so I think that was the only thing where didn't feel discriminated against it, but was I was acutely aware that there is a route into media that is, I mean, 30% of people in the media from uh, had an Oxbridge education. I didn't, but I went to a, a Russell Group University and I think it's almost 40% of privately educated. And, and that's not to demonise those people, by the way, that, that, that had the fortune of that. But what comes with that is it's not just about your education it means that when those people are through the door there are mannerisms there are ways to socialize you go to a dinner party and you know how to act there's all of these signs and signals which are very important or have always been very important in our world and I think we forget that if you come from a different place if you've kind of if your journey has been much longer and harder you finally get through the door and then you've got all of this whole world of blow dries and looking the right way and, and knowing how to network and knowing how to talk in meetings. And that's a whole, that's that whole polish question. And I suppose um, I, I joined the Social Mobility Commission a couple of years ago. And that was one of the things that I felt really passionately about was how do you get individuals into the media? Because, you know, the media is supposed to, to, is supposed to represent the nation, mm -hmm. not a small segment of the nation. Um, and so my big thing is always, well, how do you get those individuals into the media? But not only how do you get them in, how do you keep them in? Mm. Um, and I think people find it really hard to get a handle on. Well, why are these people, let's just say for argument's sake, from a lower socioeconomic background, why are they getting in and then they're disappearing? Well, the truth is the hard work is kind of once you're through those polished glass doors, actually. It's all a million different things that can feel quite exhausting after a while. Um, and there's no easy answer for that, actually, apart mm. from having more people um, like them in the media, really. To feel more comfortable. And that moment when, whether it was a friend or a work colleague, whoever it was next to you, you know, I guess at that one point you probably felt a little bit comforted because that person was in the same shoes and understood you, but at the same time completely daunted that that is who you are. And should you change that? For the industry that you want to work in absolutely not in my no, opinion the industry is so bloody boring wouldn't it i mean that that's the whole thing i mean god women's magazines when i was coming through them you were supposed to and this is just because this is the way people thought it was done it wasn't for any 
vindictive or nefarious reasons but it was like well this is the reader and this is where she lives and this is what she buys and it was one reader you were talking to it was a type of person mm. and I just never thought that was true actually I never thought men's magazines did it actually mm. um, I thought that actually you turned a page and you could have a totally different voice uh, from a different type of individual writing and actually that would make it a much more interesting magazine. I mean, the buzzword would be it make it a more diverse magazine, but it makes it more interesting. That, that, yeah. That's the whole point, isn't it? Got a hundred percent. I think this brings me really now nicely to the discomfort zone because I'm sure there was many times when you felt this that this maybe led on to certain parts within your book where you did feel an element of discomfort because it does sound like a very not the most comforting situation when you're going through those polished drawers into that environment and knowing that that's, you know, the facade that you're going to have to kind of put on this armour to pretend to be this polished version of yourself. So The the Discomfort Zone was your first book. It's an amazing book. I, I read got, it. I don't know it's if your, I'm going to write another one. Uh, it's, I yes, feel like I, you will. I, I probably will. Absolutely. I feel like you will. Never say never. I feel like there's going to be a lot more that you're going to write about because this was a huge, huge success. And I don't know how you did it because you were editing a magazine. You did a TED talk along from someone who's done a TED talk. That consumes so much of me. I don't know how you wrote a book at the same time. Um, but this book, I'll give it a small overview and I'd love you to talk much more about it because you will do it much more justice. But this book explains how life is tough but you're tougher and you only discover that you're tougher by stepping into the discomfort zone yourself. So what inspired you to write this? Was this more of your life's journey that actually you felt the need to share that you had had many times of discomfort, but you achieved so much through that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think most people's first book, um, that's why people have a nightmare writing a second book because they, because you know, there's not an, that you've not had enough life experience to have, have a, an idea whereas your first book is usually based on your entire life um yeah the pattern of my life was the the kind of more challenging things were the more the more i found out about myself actually i think so um you know I wrote the book when I was, oh, I think in my thirties and yeah, and I was editing Cosmo and actually the book came about because at that time there was lots of talk, quite rightly by the way, about self-care and about, you know, remove yourself from things that you find that you're scared of. Um, and actually you do see it now, you know, with people kind of coddling themselves going, well, I don't want to hear that person speaks. I don't agree with their views or we see it on social media. Mm. Um, and I just thought there's total validation in that, that kind of life philosophy. But when I was at Cosmo and, and Cosmo's readership was, was overwhelmingly younger women, I was like, well, actually, and I think this is the journalist in me, to be honest with you. Um, I said, there is another way. And if you want to be coddled, if you want to feel protected, then that's absolutely right. But but the reality is, is that life can be quite difficult or at some point in your life, you mm. will come up again, you'll butt up against something hard. And what usually happens is when people butt up against something hard is they remove themselves from it. And, and, and when I wrote the book, that was the prevailing notion is self-care, look after yourself, don't do it. But actually, 
what I thought was the thing about difficult situations or discomfort zones or obstacles, whatever you choose to call it, is the reason we're scared of them is because once you hit a wall, you do realize your limitations, actually. You do, you do realize a couple of things about yourself. And we all have this narrative in our head that we're the hero of our own lives and we're wonderful and we can do this and that. We all know those people. I've been them. I could do this if I wanted. I could do that. And then you never try, attempt any of them because actually you're you're too worried about discovering actually you probably couldn't do what you thought you could. But knowing what your limitations are, first of all, is really important. It's a really vital thing to know. Mm-hmm. And once you get over knowing, knowing what your limitations are, you then start to discover things that actually you didn't know you were capable of doing. So when we launch Women's Health or when we relaunch Cosmo, you know, Women's Health is very difficult But the difficulty and the constraints, so lack of money, very few staff, um, I think six weeks to to, to kind of create this product from scratch. Um, We just started to act. We channeled into something that that actually I had certainly never been given the opportunity to do, which was because of the necessity of the lack of money, time and resources, we made very bold decisions. We became very active. We didn't really sit on ideas. We went with them because we had no choice but to. And in doing that, in kind of listening to our gut and being bold and taking action immediately, we probably made quite a lot of mistakes. But we actually came up with a very unique product, which if we had had tons of money and a room full of people to to kind of pass an idea around the room. And you know what usually happens is it gets watered down so much you end up with kind of mediocrity. So I found it really interesting that actually the constraints and the challenge were what bred this very interesting product. And the same thing happened with Cosmo. And so, you know, that really is what the book was about. It was my kind of swan song to kind of younger women and men, um, Mm. any individual who was kind of, you know, um, but anyone really. But but in my mind, it was for millennial women. Um, And then the book was about. The other thing about discomfort is, 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 of course, the narrative you tell yourself, which is it's horrible and it's hard and it's not the reality. It, you know, there are little tiny moments within any situation which are, are very difficult and not very nice. But once you get past those moments, the, the kind of moments in between are, are very easy and you just have to identify what is it that you're really scared of because it's not the entire situation. If you go to a job interview, it's not the entire job interview. It's probably when you sit down and you have a difficult question or it's when I don't know. And if you figure out a solution of how to get through those really nasty, knotty bits, mm-hmm. you will feel in control. And I think, you know, it all probably goes back to our conversation at the very beginning, but there is a need within us to feel in control, even though ultimately you don't have that much control over your life. You have a little bit of control, but ultimately, depending on how philosophical you are, you don't have a, as much as you would like to think. But in thinking you have control, we feel very safe there. And so for me, it was like approach the things you're scared of, but approach it with a plan in place so that you don't feel racked by fear. The fear only comes when you don't feel you've got a kind of a lifesaver, basically. Mm. So that was why I wrote the book. I was a nightmare to live with when I wrote it because I did not have time, but I'm very glad I wrote it. And weirdly, it's having a, kind of a second life in COVID, of course, because well, everyone's uh, feeling that way everyone feels it and actually they it's not like my book where I was telling people 
force yourself into the, the discomfort zone and see what happens. They're in the bloody discomfort zone, whether they like it or not. Mm-hmm. Everybody is in the real grip of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting with the book. It has had a second life. And it's because we were all finding ourselves in these very difficult situations. Um, and how to maneuver out of them. I think that's the hardest thing, isn't it? And, yeah. as you know, you bring this thing back to control. And I think it's a really interesting concept control because you can think you're in control, but actually fear can be controlling you. Yeah, of course. And so alternatively, it's actually the other way around that you're actually controlled by your fear as opposed to controlling that fear and and taking that step and taking that leap, which you can see from your career, you've done, you know, you've grasped the moment, you've taken it by the horns and you've, you've gone straight in at the deep end and it's paid off. And as you said, it didn't always go, maybe you made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I think you learn from those. And then you you grow a lot more and and there's a really there's a there's a there's a word that's going around a lot and you wrote a really interesting article about this actually in this month's L is imposter syndrome and in the last series I had Henry Holland on here and he was he spoke to me actually a lot about imposter syndrome and he's like I've never been able to call myself a designer which for me I mean he was my first ever stylist so for me to hear that as well I was like how can you say that you're not a designer? You know, you were one of the first designers I ever worked with. And he was like, no, I didn't go to Central St. Martin's and I didn't do the typical routine that you should do. And I think he also felt very similar. He wasn't from a certain background at the same time and he felt a bit awkward. He said, I've never been able to call myself that. And that, you know, it blew my mind that he could never call himself that. And I think imposter syndrome is talked about a lot, but you've actually written about it as a real positive, especially for women. And I'd love you to expand on your views of imposter syndrome and how it's not always a negative and being seen as a fraud which is what imposter syndrome is yeah I think so I also think you're right it is this buzzword imposter syndrome buzzword's probably the wrong wrong phrase for it I know I was trying to think of what I would call it and I was just like like we're talking about it a lot of the moment but yeah I can't think of I'm not sure I thought I I'm not sure personally I find it really helpful sometimes identifying these syndromes people can get quite hung up on it Mm. it's a bit like fear when you were talking about fear can control you that's why there are probably two schools of thoughts aren't there I even though I'm quite an introspective person it's, it's the job I do I should be that is my job I do tend not to Things like fear, I try not to analyse it too much. Mm-hmm. Because actually in the analysation of fear, if you tell yourself, I'm scared, your body will start reacting to that. I mean, you will know this, your heart mm-hmm. will be faster. You're, and you you have a literally a nanosecond to tell yourself, well, mm-hmm. am I getting a perspiring lip and a beating heart because I'm scared or do I feel challenged? And if you tell yourself, actually, I feel, or you know, my body feels this way because I feel challenged, amazing things happen in your body so the blood starts flowing around your body quicker your lungs expand you can think much smarter and sharper Mm -hmm. if you tell yourself that you're scared and if you get hung up on this notion of i'm scared Mm -hmm. the very opposite happens and that's why people you know they get stage fright and all the information empties from their head so you do have an element of control with that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. with imposter syndrome yeah, again, when I was at Cosmopolitan, I was hearing it all the time. All the questions that young women were saying was, I feel an imposter, I feel an imposter. And again, I suppose it is the um, people may say I'm a contrarian, but I, I think it's actually being a journalist, which is always looking on the 
alternative side of an argument and I was like well hang on a minute if all these women are feeling and, and men by the way mm-hmm. I mean, lots of individuals have it um but but women I found talk about it much more um because I don't think it's just gender specific but mm-hmm. I do think women talk about it a lot and I was like well hang on a minute if you feel an imposter what tends to happen is if you're smart and most people are smart are smarter than they think they are mm. they really are you start to look for answers the fact that you recognize you feel an imposter well a smart person goes well i'm going to find out the answers just in case i get caught out and in in, in doing that research and trying to find the answers you usually end up the best person for the job the people that worry me are the people that don't think they um the people that don't have any sort of imposter syndrome, the people who think they can waltz into a job and they know everything and they put their feet up on the table. I mean, not literally, metaphorically. Um, Quite narcissistic but, people. Yeah, yeah they worry, yeah. That, that worries me far more. I mean, mm. when people leave magazines that are, you know, when people hand their notice in to go to another job, often people say, I'm really scared, I don't feel I'm ready. And I was like, well, actually, if you were telling me you felt ready for it or, you know, it was quite an easy job, I'd beg you to stay because actually you should feel a little bit out of your depth. And in feeling out of your depth, that's where the magic happens because you start looking for answers and that's what prepares you. So I think the imposter syndrome, you really need to re-spin it, which is if you feel that way, that's not a bad thing. That is your body telling you, yeah, you're not, you're, you don't know everything. And mm-hmm. And the purpose and the enjoyment comes in trying to find out the answers, you know, that whole, there's a, I think it was Alex James, actually, of all people, the, the bass player from Blur, who said success never quite feels like you're there. And actually, I think that's right. And actually, the enjoyment in life, I think people don't realise until they get to the top and they look back, the enjoyment came from the climb to get there. Mm-hmm. And in that climb is the finding the answers and not knowing your way, but finding a way. So people should kind of cherish those feelings, really, mm-hmm. rather than being fearful of them. Yeah, because you talk a lot about hustling, don't you? Hustling. Yeah. Really, really clever hustlers are individuals who realize the value they have to someone. And so they go, let me help you with something. And then somebody feels more inclined to help you. That's true hustling. I mean, actually, when I started mm-hmm. when I was at Women's Health, there, um, we we were looking for couples who trained together. And I think I put something out on Twitter and this young man got back to me immediately um, and said, I train with my partner. I'd, I'd be really happy to speak with you. Let me know a good time for you. Um, he was so unfailingly helpful. I spoke to him, I interviewed him on the phone. He was like, you know, I'm also a PT. And if you ever want to do my body plan, let me know, I'll send you on free. And I never did it. And, but he was so helpful that we ended up using him as an expert. And it was Joe Wicks before he was Joe Wicks. I was going to say, is that Joe Wicks? It sounded just like him. He was so it's just so nice to deal with and so Mm. helpful and he had the mindset of let me help you so of course later on in my career when I interviewed and we did bigger things on Joe you really don't mind because the hustle actually works both ways and I think it is quite important to remember that it's not just a handout you know that's a sort of terrible thing to say but people will help you Mm -hmm. the first couple of times but after a while you know, it has got to work both ways. And actually, I think for your own pride and self-esteem, you want it to work both ways, actually. 
definitely I think that's really interesting I was literally grabbing this as you were speaking about it because I, like, I wrote down this quote last night I was on a phone to a friend and she said and this and I'm not religious by the way but she said this is a quote from the bible and I don't she said her mum said it to her and she said it to me last night and it stuck in my mind and she said to whom much is given much will be required and that really stuck with me and, I, and it, it's embodying everything you say and I think it's so true you can't expect much without giving it in return yeah. and um that's a true hustler and likewise <laughs> with those people who are very giving things do come their way they, yeah. they, they, you know people think well kindness that, goes a long way it does yeah it does so so actually it all goes down to just be a decent individual doesn't it just be helpful just be nice and um, always remember who you're speaking to because i found this really important you know that could be an assistant's assistant but in 10 years time they might be a very powerful person so don't ever disregard anybody who you're working with and i think that can be in any industry you're in but it's treat every single person with the same amount of respect and also good bosses ask their assistants about people mm -hmm. like that they really do that you know the number of times i ask my assistant what do you think of that person and if you've been rude to the assistant it will get to the boss so i, I would be really yeah really careful of things like that i think that's yeah that's very good advice and so lastly i could talk to you for hours um lastly how do you live well be well farah because it's a question i like to ask to all my guests to end the podcast well, what does live well, be well mean to you, actually? That's the question I ask. What does live well, be well mean to you? I think they're the same things for me. If I live well, then I will be well, mm. I think. And I think I found that place for me, which is, you know, I live well in that I chose a good partner. I have engineered a lifestyle for me. I, I think living well, actually, is connected to understanding yourself very well. And I understand myself very well. I'm never going to be an extrovert. I'm never going to be a massive networker. I'm never going to be the life and soul of the party. And that's okay, actually. And so understanding that about myself, understanding what I'm really good at and what I'm not good at, means I have created a life for myself, which allows me to live well, given the type of person I am. And that's why, you know, I live in the country. I live a very solitary life. Um, I socialise when I have to, but actually not that much. I love gardening because I can be alone. Um, you have to understand yourself in order to live well. I think that's the first step of living well. It's not getting a, a list together. If I'm gonna, I'm gonna join a spin class, I'm gonna have green juices, understand what makes you tick. Mm. And that can take years actually to understand who you are. Um, and you have to keep questioning it. And actually, I think living well for people probably changes every few years. I think every few years you have to look back at the point that you're at in your life and go, am I on the right direction? And you might have taken a wrong turn. That's why you have to keep looking back every few years to get yourself back on the path. And sometimes, as a lot of people this year have found with COVID, um, sometimes the path you're on is was the right path at 30, but then at 50, it was completely the wrong path and that's okay mm. but in order to live well you've got to change the direction quickly um so that's a very long no it's great it's pivoting to yourself basically. i think it's brilliant that's the best way of putting it yeah pivoting to yourself understand yourself yeah i think that's fantastic and I, I think it's also really great that you said it can take a long time to get there as well 
it's not just you'll simply wake up and know who you are. It's a lot of self-development and that comes with a lot of hard work at the same time. Yeah, and a lot of asking questions constantly, asking yourself. It's a good mantra for life. Question everything, including yourself. Fantastic. Farah, thank you so much for coming on to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much to everyone who listened to today's episode. I hope you found it extremely inspiring. And if you want to follow more around the BWAG Collective, you can follow it by Instagram at at B underscore well underscore collective. Or you can follow me, the host, Sarah Ann Macklin, at Sarah Ann Macklin on Instagram. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.